As many of you know, Abby and I were away last Sunday uh, because we were overseas. <clears throat> combined trip of celebrating our 40th uh, birthday. And also, um, Abby's not 40 yet. She would like for me to tell you that. She turns 40 later on in the year. Um, but, or in January. Uh, so we, we, we both turned 40, so we, we, we combined a little bit of vacation with an uh, international conference that I was attending and also getting to be with our partners in Scotland. It's a nine-day trip. It was the longest that we've ever been away uh, from all four of our kids. And Abby parents, Abby's parents were so gracious to come to town and watch them uh, while we were gone. Uh, and they did a fantastic job. I know that they listen to my sermons online, so I want to make sure they hear me say how grateful we are for them, how amazing they were with our kids. But uh, grandparents are going to grandparent. And you know exactly what I mean. Abby and I were on a nine-day vacation. Our kids have been on a nine-day vacation. <laughs> Particularly Henry, our three-year-old, um, I think think he's glad to have us back in town. I'm not sure. Uh, there, were, there was a couple days of an overlap of when, when we were back and, and Abby's parents were still in town. And, um, and Henry kept telling Abby and I to leave because he wanted to be with Gigi alone. Um, and I don't blame him because Gigi can't say no to Henry. So since we've been back, uh, Henry's been ordering us around like he owns a place because he did, in fact, own the place for a week. And so now that they're gone, our kids are going through uh, what we refer to as grandparent detox. Uh, we got to get the spoil out of them. And so the boys are getting a little extra dose of sternness and discipline uh, this week. We're having to assert our authority and remind them who's in charge and kind of shock their systems back into place. As we turn to what is obviously a controversial passage, that's actually a good way to conceptualize what happens here. It's, it's a shock to the system, a, a moment where God asserts his authority and reminds this early church of his holiness. And I think we need this reminder as well. We have a tendency to conceptualize our heavenly father as a heavenly grandfather. We tend to take his holiness for granted. And on occasion, it is important to be shocked by the holiness of God. And remember that we serve a God who is to be feared. We're going to do that this morning in two ways. We're going to look at the severity of God's holiness and the serenity of God's holiness. Now, let's just start with the severity. Before we get into the passage, let's deal with the obvious question that the passage presents. I think it's safe to assume that this isn't a regular occurrence in church. Uh, so what are we to make of, of what happens here? I would, I would say the same thing here as I have said about the apostolic miracles that we have seen and the miracles that we're going to see in the next passage next week. Remember that what we have discussed is that this is a unique moment in redemptive history as we witness the inauguration of the new covenant and the formation of the church. And, and just like 
in every other major event in Scripture, what we see is that they are always accompanied by unique signs and wonders. So the apostles were endowed by Jesus with the power and authority of Jesus. And we've seen that as the apostles perform miracles in his name. We're going to see it next week as just the shadow of the apostle Peter is healing people. But his power and authority are not exclusive to healing. And here we see it demonstrated in judgment. So we treat this like we treat the miracles we have seen in Acts, unique occurrences surrounding a unique moment in redemption. But digging even deeper beyond the question, we must ask, what is the message behind this unique occurrence? In other words, we have discussed the meaning behind the supernatural tongue speaking at Pentecost. Why did God do that? We've looked at uh, the meaning behind the supernatural healing of the paralytic and all the, the message that's behind that. Well, then what's the meaning behind this supernatural event? And it's simple. God is holy. How holy? Let's look at the severity that we see in this passage. Follow along. But, so this is meant to be a contrast to the previous episode of the community's excessive generosity. So, but in contrast, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. By the way... Quick aside, this is actually one of the more definitive passages establishing the divinity of the Holy Spirit um, in Scripture. Notice in verse 3, Peter says that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in the same breath, the same sentence in verse 4, Peter says that you have lied to God, meaning the two are the same in one. But now look at the consequence of their lie. And it is severe. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out to bury him. So much to unpack there. Some commentaries argue that this is meant to be interpreted um, with uh, parallels to Adam and Eve's original sin. And that's why Luke goes into these details of the two, um, the, the husband and wife conspiring together to listen to Satan and test God. That, that might be reading too much into the text, but certainly the principle is the same. They are both guilty and rebellion to God, and they immediately suffer the promised curse of death that God promised in Eden. One transgression One act of rebellion and Adam and Eve are sentenced to death along with all humanity. And then here, one transgression, one act of rebellion and Ananias and Sapphira suffer that sentence. And the message is that this is how holy our God truly is. Listen, the holiness of God cannot be overstated. 
Perhaps this does have allusions to Adam and Eve, but it most certainly has parallels to our Old Testament reading. One of the most confusing and troublesome passages in the Bible is when Nadab and Abihu did not follow uh, priesthood regulations properly, just changed it a little bit, added a little bit of incense, and the fire of the Lord immediately consumed them. You read that passage, you say, my goodness, this is harsh, this is cruel. But the point of the passage is that you wouldn't say that if you knew how holy God is. And the same is true with our passage. It only seems harsh and cruel when we fail to appreciate the holiness of God. You see, this passage is about much more than greed. Look more closely at the details. In verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Contrary to popular assumption about Acts, the members of the early church were not required to sell their possessions and give the proceeds as we have seen now twice in Acts. Peter says, while it remained unsold, wasn't that yours? And after it was sold, was not that at your disposal? Meaning, you didn't have to sell it. And after you sold it, you didn't have to give all the proceeds. And even if they were forthright and told the apostles that what they wanted to do was to give some of the proceeds to the church and keep some from themselves, that would not have been a problem. The issue is that they are pretending to give it all to the church while secretly keeping some for themselves. It's not greed as much as it is contrived, conspired self-righteousness. It is a wicked act of lying to the holy church, posturing themselves as so generous, seeking glory and admiration from the community. But notice how Peter describes it. You have not lied to man, you've lied to God. In lying to the church, they are lying to God. And then look at some of the details from Sapphira's death. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she doubles down. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? What does it mean that they are testing the Spirit of the Lord? It means they're testing the holiness of God. They are challenging and trifling with God's holiness and justice, arrogantly presuming that He will simply tolerate their wicked actions Sin is a dangerous game we play. It is being cavalier with a holy God. And Ananias and Sapphira show us exactly what that game deserves. What happens is God makes an example of Ananias and Sapphira in the new covenant, just as he did with Nadab and Abihu in the old covenant. In both instances, when the covenants were being inaugurated and established, he chooses to make an example of his holiness. But the point that we must understand is that it's a just 
example. Meaning Ananias and Sapphira received the justice his holiness demands. Obviously, every sin is not met with such swift judgment. But the point of the passage is that every sin should. Were he not so commonly benevolent, the entirety of the human race would drop dead as in the flood. That's how holy God is. And that's how sinful humanity is. Oh, how we presume upon the benevolence of God as if He is just simply indifferent to our sin. He is the great, awesome, terrifying, thrice holy God. And were the common protection of His common grace removed, I would be carried out of this room to the morgue just as Ananias and Sapphira. Do you understand this? Because it's important for you too. Do you understand that every bitter thought, every lustful glance, every covetous desire, every discontent complaint, every prideful boast, every lie, every slander, every greed, every failure to do what you ought to do deserves the consuming fire of God's holiness. We are just... So cavalier with our sin and God's holiness. But the story of Ananias and Sapphira is like a whiff of ammonium to sober us up to the dreadful holiness of our God. And that's what happened to the rest of the community. They were awakened to the severity of God's holiness which then gave way to the proper perspective of God's holiness, which I'm calling not the severity of God's holiness, but the serenity of God's holiness. Let's look at that together. I'm willing to bet serenity would be the last word you would use to describe this passage. Because on the surface, there is absolutely nothing serene about this story. But that's actually how it ends in both cases. I want you to notice the community's Response to both deaths in our passage. Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And then skip down to verse 10. When the young men came and in, they, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Both times we are told that great fear came upon the whole community. Great fear of the Lord, to be specific. Now, commentators are right to point out that fear of God is probably best translated as something like awe or reverence. It's a healthy fear, not an unhealthy fear. But that being said, I don't want to minimize it as having no component of fear in the traditional sense. If you were there witnessing this, you would have freaked out. So just because it is healthy fear doesn't mean it isn't scary. But what I'm trying to suggest is that this fear is a good thing. Again, back to my children. I like to think 
that my children feel very safe and secure in my love and admiration for them. And yet there are times when, yes, they're scared of me. Not in an unhealthy way, but scared of me in the sense that their loving father is at the same time an authority in their life that they should not trifle with. And that healthy fear is good for them because my authority is good for them. I know what's best. They don't. So if they live with a healthy reverence for my authority, they will flourish as children. And this is why the scriptures say, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Serenity of life is discovered within a healthy fear of God. Because if that is your governing principle, you will flourish in life. Or to put it negatively, fear of anything else will prove destructive. You see, we are all living our lives fearing something. And what you fear controls you. For example, perhaps you fear the opinion of others. And so your days are spent controlled by that fear. Always trying to impress, always trying to appease, always trying to posture yourself in ways that will gain their approval. Perhaps you fear failure, and so your days are spent controlled by the fear of failure. Exhausting yourself in the elusive pursuit of success. Perhaps you fear your children's failure. And so your days are spent controlled by that fear, exhausting them in the elusive pursuit of their success. Perhaps you fear the future, and so your days are spent controlled by that fear. Perhaps you fear a life of singleness. Perhaps you fear a life of poverty. Perhaps you fear a life of meaningless. Perhaps you fear a life of boredom. Whatever you fear controls your days. And the point is that any fear save the fear of the Lord, will prove destructive. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and flourishing. If fear of the Lord controls you, then you cannot go wrong. Because any thought, any action filtered through the fear of God will always prove right, true, and good. And so here's my simple application question for you and perhaps for your parish group tonight. What is the location of your fear that can easily be discerned by what dominates your thoughts and drives your actions on a daily basis? The location of your fear lies behind the principal motivation that controls your days. So what is the location of your fear If it is anything other than God, then it's not working, is it? Friends, your fear is killing you. But there is serenity. There is peace. There is joy. There is contentment. There is life found in the fear of the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira are before us this morning to wake us up to a holy fear of our holy God. Look again at verse 5. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
Verse 10, great fear became, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So it wasn't just those who were there that day. Word got out about this extraordinary event. The rumor of God's holiness spread. And in this way, fear of the Lord spread. And now this morning, it has spread to us. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, two members showed up for church and dropped dead for their sin. It's that serious. We're not playing games here. As we will sing in a moment, we serve a thrice holy God and he is not to be tested. But at the same time, he is not to be feared. Now, wait a minute. I thought you just preached a whole sermon telling us to fear God. I thought the whole point was to fear the Lord. It is but in a healthy way, not an abusive way. You see, for many of us, the location of our fear is God, but not God's holiness, God's approval. And so that fear likewise controls us. We spend our days like an abused child with an unhealthy fear of an abusive parent, trying to appease, trying to earn favor, trying to escape the inevitable judgment we fear is coming. Do you know what the most repeated command in Scripture is? Fear not. That's interesting. The same book that says we are to fear God, every time God shows up and people are terrified by His presence, they are told, fear not. Why? Because the holiness of God that causes sinners to tremble has been mitigated by the same God such that His presence is now our delight. How can we not notice the illusion in the final details of each of these deaths? Ananias falls dead. Verse 6 says, The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. Sapphira falls dead. Verse 10 says, They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. How can our thoughts not go to our precious Savior, dead, wrapped, and carried to his burial? After all this holiness discussion... Do you not now appreciate that much more what Christ endured? When we get serious with God's holiness, the cross receives the seriousness it deserves. What did Jesus receive? The consuming fire of God's holiness that you deserve. I'll turn to the words of Donald McLeod describing Jesus and his fear in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepared to die. This is what McLeod says. What Christ saw in Gethsemane was God with his sword raised. The sight was unbearable. In a few short hours, he would stand before that God answering for the sin of the world, indeed identified with the sin of the world. No one ever feared death so much as this man. Death would be for him the full wages of sin. Death unmodified and unmitigated. Death as involving all that sin deserves. He alone would face it without a covering as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's holy abhorrence of sin. The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for for their sake he faced it terrified. We are shocked when we read a passage like this 
one this morning and yet casually take for granted the passages detailing the death of Christ. Let us tremble at both this morning. Yes, fear our holy God, but fear him as the God who endured the wrath of his own holiness such that we now have nothing to fear. Let me pray. Lord, give us that proper, healthy, holy fear of our good, perfect, loving Father, who, yes, is holy, and yes, calls us to fear Him in every way, to acknowledge You, to reverence You in all that we say and do, but at the same time to do so knowing that You are the God who bore the full weight of Your holy wrath, such that we have nothing to fear. May communion do that to our hearts, that proper balance. In Jesus' name. Amen.